Welcome to the Symposium of the Lotus Eaters. Today it's a special symposium. We have Father Calvin Robinson with us and Connor Tomlinson mm -hmm. as well. And we are going to talk about Max Weber's Protestant ethics and the spirit of capitalism. We are not going to talk especially about the book. We're not going to do a book review, but we are going to talk about the main themes of that book. And uh, let me just say one thing. Max Weber is considered to be one of the founders of modern sociology. He was born in 1864 in Germany and died in 1920. And he is very much uh, famous for uh, giving a non-Marxist account for the development of capitalism. And um, let me quote towards the end what he says. He says, we are starting with a beginning. It's non-linear narrative. Okay. Here we have only attempted to trace the fact and the direction of its influence, he means Protestantism, to their motives in one, though a very important point. But it would also further be necessary to investigate how Protestant asceticism was in turn influenced in its development and its character by the totality of social conditions, especially economic. The modern man is in general, even with the best will, unable to give religious ideas a significance for culture and national character which they deserve. But it is, of course, not my aim to substitute for a one-sided materialistic and equally one-sided spiritualistic causal interpretations of culture and of history. Each is equally possible, but each, if it does not deserve, if it does not serve as the preparation, but as the conclusion of an investigation, accomplishes equally little in the interest of historical truth. So what Max Weber is doing in this book is basically saying Marx was wrong in viewing society only as an outcome of economic activity. In Marxist uh, thought, there is the distinction between the substructure, which is economic, and the superstructure. And basically the superstructure is completely determined by the economic condition. Mm. At least this is the case in classical Marxist thought. Weber was someone who said that ideas play a role too. And in order to give explanation in the social sciences, in order to explain cultural events, we definitely need to take into ideas into account. Mm. And he thinks basically that the ideas that were incredibly influential for shaping modern capitalism were Protestantism, especially in and the ideas involved in it, like the Luther's conception of the calling and Calvinist predestinationism. So I think we're going to have a very interesting discussion today when we're talking about these ideas. Uh, we have the person for, for it, if you want to hear about it. So I think I'm looking forward to it. What's, what's quite interesting as well is mine Calvin's relative distinctions in denomination, because <laughs> I am the most Protestant of temperament Catholic, and you are the most Catholic of temperament <laughs> Anglican. Yeah, but I, I love what you said about that opening, because I think that actually exemplifies where we are as a society right now. Yeah. We are stuck in a Marxist idea of, of looking at society through economic lens rather than taking on board ideas. We see that in every single element of our lives. Uh, the latest train station to be built and opened in, in the UK, in South Thanet, is the ugliest train station you'll ever see in, in, in your life. It's, it's just disgusting because it's all about 
we need to get something built. Here is a budget to build it. it it's utilitarian in that it needs to be a station that we can stop and people can get off the train. There's no thought of the idea of, you know, you look, look at Liverpool Lime Street, look at St Pancras of these grand hotels that could be castles, essentially. The first thing you see when you reach a new central destination is something that says something about the character of that place. We've lost all that. And now it's just, yeah, bang something up with brick and mortar. It doesn't really matter if it's beautiful or not. It does a job. Mm. And because we've forgotten to consider the idea, it's all about the economics. I, w- I want to combine Weber here with George Orwell on Notes on a Common Toad. There's a little passage in, in that otherwise forgettable essay where he says that the Soviets and the architectural modernists mm. stripped buildings of their beauty to make, over successive generations, men forget their appetite for aesthetics, mm. so to transpose their religious instinct from God towards the state. Yeah. And Weber was hitting upon that with his idea of a disenchanted world. Yeah. And I think what Weber gets to, and this is something that uh, eventually Marshall McLuhan and Carl Schmitt will pick up on, is that by getting rid of God mm. from life, from architecture, from culture, you don't take away the spirit that is inhabiting the culture. You just allow a vacuum for another spirit to fulfill it. And Weber says what capitalism is, is essentially the worship of mammon rather than God, which is something that that is proposed in the Gospels, and Mm. mammon being not translated to money, because it wasn't a form of currency, but, but some kind of entity behind avarice. And then you get McLuhan and Schmidt, which we won't cover here, but I will do at some point on the channel, that say that existential threats are a Trojan horse by which Mm. the Antichrist can emerge into the world under the banality of progressive forces like technological development or capitalism. And this is something that Weber seems to be hinting at, is that you are not not worshipping anything in a so-called neutral market system. You're worshipping something. You're worshipping yourself, which makes you susceptible to falling for another spirit, Mm. which I quite like. Mm. Well, I must say that this is not exactly my reading of the text, Mm. but it's an interesting discussion to have in the future about this, because I don't think that Weber is saying that uh, people in capitalism do not worship God. He is essentially making the claim that the way they worship God is completely different than the way they did before, and it does become a bit more materialistic in Mm. their daily lives. So I would say that he definitely claims that there is a difficulty in finding room for the divine Mm. in contemporary culture, but I wouldn't go so far as saying that he says that there is no no room for worshipping it. I would say that he makes the more cautious claim that it is incredibly more difficult. I think the position of worship gets eroded, and again, it's something that, that Schmidt has talked about. And Weber does allude to it in his arc of progression from the Catholic, and let's use a, a lower C Catholic um, here, worldview, mm. to the uh, comprehensive perspective of the world of various Protestant sects, in that there is nothing that is beyond the realm of human understanding, that almost there is a calling to try and comprehend everything about the what this was part of the emphasis of the scientific revolution right and because nothing is obscured that means that all you need to do is eventually pull out that building block of metaphysical distance with a bit of suspicion culturally and then suddenly you've got the promethean mandate to man uh, remake and commodify everything and that seems to be the trajectory that we followed i think though that there is a danger in 
reading a particular text through the prism of texts and authors that came afterwards. And for instance, I don't know about uh, Schmidt, what Schmidt would say, but I, I think that it's important to address Weber on its own grounds. And he had a really interesting background. His mother was a Calvinist and his father was a very weird uh, figure. He, he almost dreaded him. And at some point in, I think in, 19, in 1897, he protested against his father because he, th he thought that he mistreated his uh, mother. And he had a nervous breakdown afterwards. He had a crisis of conscience. And essentially what happened, this crisis of conscience transformed him from, you could say, a classical economist who was enthusiastic about the ideas of Adam Smith to someone who read Nietzsche and combined both. So he had, after that, he emerged as someone who was much more in tune with Nietzschean ideas. And these were ideas that he, influenced, that he developed in his uh, work afterwards. Because after this, this is essentially the beginning of his uh, thought. After this, he's talking a lot about the, concepts, the concept of domination, which he equates with power and legitimacy. And he also talks about uh, economy and society. This is his greatest book. It was unfortunately left unfinished. But I think that throughout his life, he did have strong religious figures in his daily, in his daily ordinary tasks. Mm. And he was very much influenced by his mother. He really liked his mother, but he wasn't exactly someone who loved his mother and embraced all her ideas. He does seem to th think that Calvinism does have some problems. And I think it's important if we start talking a bit about the main, the two main ideas that he thinks are incredibly important and influential in shaping modern capitalism, and then perhaps go to for the bulk of our discussion when we talk about disenchantment of the world and how we can make sense of it. So I think one of the major ideas here is Luther's conception of the calling. And I think it is really important to understand the distinctions between Lutheranism or Protestantism in general and Lutheranism in specific with Catholicism. So could you please tell us, you know, for members of the audience who don't uh, know well yet or they don't feel they, they are confident with their knowledge of it, what are the main differences between Catholicism and Protestantism, <laughs> at least in a natural? The main difference, I suppose it depends on your perspective. There are lots of differences. Uh, for example, Luther thought it was important that the Bible was read in the vernacular so that people could have an understanding of, of, of what was being taught uh, in the gospel. Or, or you could see it in perspective of power in that Protestants um, don't submit to the authority of the Pope, although some of them will recognize um, the leadership of, of Rome. So there are different, I mean, it's not as simple as saying this is what Protestantism course, is, yeah. this is what Catholicism yes. is. Um, but I would say in terms of Luther, uh, both of those issues play at hand, although he didn't obviously intend to leave the Roman Catholic Church initially. He ended up resorting in heresy. But a lot of it comes down to submission. Yeah. Would you say that one contention, and this is why Anglicanism, I think, in, particularly in England, not just the global Anglican Church, occupies a, a middle ground, is that a lot of Protestant sects place the locus of legitimate biblical interpretation in the individual, focusing on their personal relationship with God, whereas the hierarchy of the Catholic Church is the 
being the bridegroom of Christ is that which interfaces on behalf of its flock. They do do now, but that isn't how it began. I think that's a, that's a very modern interpretation because it's we live in a society of individualism, right? So everyone's like, oh, I don't need church. I've got my Bible. I can find Christ myself. It's like, yeah, but that's not Christianity because you need the church and you need to interpret the Bible through the church. I think even most Protestants of, of the Reformation would have agreed with that. I think the difference being that what, how we interpret the church is, is different now as well. So church, big C, is the body of Christ, um, you know, the, the invisible church and the visible church. But the, the thing that we become a member of in our baptism in water and the Holy Spirit, the thing that we um, subscribe to or, or see as a marriage between Christ and us. So that is how we would interpret it in the broader sense. But then there are people that would interpret it as a literal institution. It would say, you know, this is the institution of the church, and either you're part of that or you're not. And then the question becomes, well, what does it mean to be saved? Do you have to be a member of the institution or do you have to be a member of the broader body? Um, so th there's too much going on. I think we need to narrow it down a bit to, yeah. to, to really get to something. I purposefully asked this question, and I really like uh, the answer, because very frequently when we are talking about isms, mm. mass movements, yeah. they are umbrella terms. Yeah. So it's very difficult to capsulize and capture their essence in a nutshell, in a way that does historical justice yes. to them. And if I can just interrupt for a moment, just to say that Protestantism in general was never ever about creating a new church. Yeah. And that's obviously a misconception of modernity that people think, oh, they set up the Lutheran church, they set up the Anglican church and such. Protestantism or the Reformation was about reforming the church. It was about finding out error, heresy, superstition, and ridding the church of them for the church yes. in order to protect Christ's body on earth and to, and to make it more accurate, uh, more, more wholesome, and, and less uh, heretical. That was the purpose of it. It was never to separate and to create something new. That's, that's currently what's happening at the moment a little bit as well, not to get into papal politics, but when Pope Francis befriends the widow of Paolo Freire and comes out and says that there's no migrant crisis, it's no shock that there is a split into the progressive Germans that are saying he's not adopting abortion fast enough or, yeah. or female bishops and priests yeah. and all that. And then the more traditionalists who I find affinity with who go, Vatican II was a mistake, only John Paul II has been the, and, and sometimes Pope Benedict as well, um, has been good and in line since. And it seems that the current Pope is rendering himself illegitimate by having his ears deaf to the Holy Spirit. So it's not surprising that that sentiment happened back then and is being reverberated now yeah. when the person who is occupying that seat who has those obligations bestowed upon him is not living up to that vocation. So there's a question here because to my mind and I don't know a lot about this and obviously uh, I think you're the person to answer. Would you say that in most brands of Catholicism if not in everyone there is the injunction to obey the Pope because the Pope is the representative of God's will on earth, so, or, or, not, or this is completely wrong? That, again, that's another modern idea. Okay. So when I look at Catholicism, I look at the first, uh, the undivided church of the first millennium, right? So I look at when, before the Great Schism, and look at when the whole church was as united as it has ever been, and try to look at what was taught then and what was known then, and what the church fathers taught and, and knew. And no one spoke of the Pope I mean, first of all, he's not the Pope. The Pope is the, is the, is the title of the, uh, of the Eastern Orthodox head of the church. The, the Bishop of Rome, is the Pontifex, is not the Pope. It's, it's a colloquialism that we've adopted that doesn't really make much sense. But let's, let's go with it anyway. But the Pope was never the, 
universal ruler of the church. Mm. Now he sits in the seat of Peter, which is an honorific seat. It, it has a lot of prestige for obvious reasons. Um, but so did all the apostolic seats. Um, Constantinople, for one, and this is why the great shame of the, the Fourth Crusade when Constantinople was tipped, um, it does us all a de detriment. But all of those seats were honorific. The seat of Peter was seen as the first among equals. Now that into Paris is important because it was never a jurisdictional thing, it was never an earthly authority thing until Councillor Trent, Vatican I, Vatican II, like very, very recent. Um, for example, the King of France assigned bishops, bishoprics in France. The King of Spain assigned bishoprics in Spain. Uh, one of the reasons that Henry VIII fell out with the Bishop of Rome is because he was assigning bishoprics in England and he, we said, well, you have no authority in this realm. And so it was an overstep of his jurisdiction, an overstep of his authority. Um, Eamon Duffy writes about this very well from a Catholic perspective on how the papacy has, has been a power grab and it's not actually, the magisterium is the authority of the church, not the Pope. And this whole idea of, well, he's only infallible when he's speaking ex cathedra, again, all a very contemporary conception. Speak to the church fathers, and none of them would have recognised that language or, or the idea, the very concept is foreign. So we, we've kind of, I think, to be honest with you, when the Holy Roman Empire fell, and the Pope no longer had his dominions, his armies, his territories, he lost a lot of earthly power. Yeah. And this was a political figure, a, a, essentially a, a monarch of sorts, a constitutional monarch. And so he regained some of that power by grabbing theological power, by grabbing church, church power. And this is one of the reasons that I, I'm not in full communion with Rome. Because okay. I recognise his position of, as, as, as a leadership position, as a first among equals, but I recognise him as just any other bishop. I don't see, an alter, I don't see a universal jurisdiction over all the bishops. So more like a primum inter pares, but yes. not as the infallible head Absolutely. of the institution. Yeah, yeah. and um, which, okay. which most Catholics most of the time would have agreed with. Yes, but this when did this change? Was there a change in scholarship that led people into adopting the more modern view? Was there a change in the rhetoric? What what contributed to this change of perspective? Um, I think, as with a lot of situations of power, you don't always um, legislate it, you gain it by practicing it. Yes. So once, once you've been assigning bishoprics for a, a few decades, it becomes, it becomes expected that you are the person that does it. And then that's, that's a literal power grab. Yes. And therefore, there's no way to challenge it because it's not actually, there's no written jurisdiction. Would you say so that, practice. Would you say that Luther challenged that or not? Yeah, yeah, he did challenge that amongst, amongst the many things that he challenged. But again, the, the fault there is not managing to correct or challenge whilst remaining within the church. There's no point stepping outside of yeah. the church and then challenging it from the outside because no one's going to listen, or not yeah. to the same degree. Also, okay. in the inverse as well, two factors that influence in the 20th century. Uh, one, I'm not going to sit there and rag on Vatican II the entire time, but <laughs> the restructuring of the church, the decreased emphasis on the Latin Mass, the rewriting of various prayers, the mm. practical removal of incense and beauty mm. uh, with architecture you've already alluded to within the church made the Catholic Church a lot more Puritan, Protestant in practice. And okay. so it hollowed out the yeah. heart of it and it's a seat of a lot of discord. 
And this is something that Paul Kengel's documented. There was a, a communist activist by the name of Dr. Bella Dodd who led an infiltration effort into the Catholic Church. And this was two-pronged. Uh, there were the liberation theologists in South America that were emboldened by the Romanian spy chiefs over at the KGB. They cooked that up to try and subvert South America. Now we have Pope Francis, who is a liberation theologist Jesuits. They're at it again. And also Bella Dodd in the States led a lot of communist activists to enroll themselves in the church. And she estimated well over the hundreds. Um, and she told this to a congressional testimony, I believe. So having those kinds of people piddling inside your tent mm. means you're going to get a flood. Well, okay. it was the enemy. It was the enemy trying to infiltrate the church, mm. which is what he's always wanted to do. Mm. And too many people succumbed, unfortunately. You know, the traditional Latin mass is is pretty much the fullness of the of the mass. It's a great shame that it was, well, that it's currently being suppressed. It's, it seems to me that there is no good reason to suppress something that is true, good and beautiful, other than being influenced by the enemy. Yeah, it's a ratcheting effect up towards the human ego, the same sort of thing that compelled Eve to eat of the fruit and think that she could be as a god in everything must be comprehensible, everything must be available to the self-authoring sovereign subject. But that's just the excuse that's used for the delusion. Yeah. And, and the interesting thing for me as, as someone outside of communion with Rome is that we've managed to hold on to this. So the, the, the English church um, has managed to hold on to the mass in its fullness. So if you look at the English Missal, it is the, the Latin mass, but with words translated to English. So they didn't remove things as they did with the Novus Ordo. And the, the translation is much more beautiful. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church has come round to the translation of the English church for things like, um, you know, when, if I say the Lord be with you, what would you say? Um, and with the spirit. Right, which, which was changed from, yes. um, and also with you. Yes. But we've always said, and with thy spirit. For, so that's just one example of like, the English translation has always been superior because the, the Roman one was rushed mm. post-Reformation. Um, but if we'd have worked together, if we hadn't have split, it would have been far better for everyone. But my point is that we hung on to the Mass. So the English Mass, although Roman Catholics wouldn't recognise it as valid or legitimate for political reasons, because the Pope decided it was no longer valid or legitimate. But if take that aside for a moment and assume that the Mass is the Mass, the English Mass is more reverential and higher than the Novus Ordo. I, I would say sometimes more reverential and higher in, in theology than the Latin Mass, but oftentimes on a level with it because we didn't have the same um, theological uh, watering down dilution that happened during Vatican II. Hmm. When it comes to Protestantism and the break from Catholicism, would you say that it is a sensible generalization to claim that Protestantism is much more decentralized in its operation than Catholicism? Uh, yeah, yeah. So I think what Weber is getting at in the beginning of the book is by saying that there is a, there is a spirit of decentralization in Protestantism yeah. that was also parallel to a, an effort to decentralize the economy. Right. And I, I was reading some books ago, some time ago, about the effect of the Black Plague mm. on, the, on Europe. And uh, lots, of, uh, lots of them were saying that uh, around a third of the European population died because the economic model was production for immediate consumption. And that led to the absence of a stock. So there was a decentralized economic mm. activity or there was a pressure to decentralize economic activity after that. Yeah. And Weber would, would say that these tendencies, in combination with Protestantism, 
which was much more decentralized in yeah. exercising power in comparison to... It's the greatest weakness of Protestantism. So okay. whilst we just talked about liturgical reforms and how the, yeah. the, the English church has been saved of those because of this decentralization, it's yeah. also the greatest weakness of Protestantism okay. because there is no authority, there's no direct authority. They don't have anywhere to look for authority, which should mean that nothing changes. But in effect, yeah. it means that things become more and more liberal because there's no one to stop it. If we look at, for example, the ordination of women or the remarriage of remarrying of divorcees or the acceptance of contraception, look at any kind of liberalism that's taken hold in the in the Anglican Church as an example. It's because there is no ultimate authority, there is no authority to look to. So that mm -hmm. should mean that the church has no authority to make these decisions. But in yeah. fact, what it's meant in practice is the church has no authority to prevent them. Yes. Mm -hmm. To compound yeah. the development of ideas of ideas there as well with where exactly this kind of Protestant ratcheting effect towards individualism took place. Both in America by the Puritan settlers, they stumbled upon uh, a, an unsettled Goldilocks land of prospective abundance that needed to be tamed. And of course, with the religious conflict that was going on at the time, the Puritans had the impetus to go elsewhere and fulfill their calling. See Governor John Winthrop's sermon, a uh, model of Christian charity that said, this was where the shining city on a hill phrase got first applied to America. And also in England, and this is something we're going to talk about when we do Col Polanyi, that is the Enclosures Acts, which devolved certain land rights from the Crown to the more, more to the landed gentry as a prerequisite to shuffling lots of the serfs um, at the behest of the landowners into cities when industrialised production became possible. Yeah. So it's the devolution from centralised authority, which was actually more benevolent because it kept that approximate distance, like God would with his people from the the serfs to then down to being more individual, more democratic, but actually ultimately ended up being more alienating. Yeah, because it's about submission, isn't it? Yes. In, in serfdom, people knew their place, so to speak. And I don't mean to trigger anyone that, with that language, but you knew how to contribute to society. So your focus could be on the worship of God or on the growing of your family. It could be on be, being a good person. But now in this individualized society, our focus is on survival. And we're taught in order to survive, we have to acquire wealth. We have to earn money to in order to be able to put food on the table. So our entire focus has shifted. We were freer when we submitted, whether that was to the Lord of the land or to our Lord in yeah. our heavenly Lord. Uh, let me ask you this. When you say uh, people were free or when they submitted, yes. uh, in what sense of freedom do you do That you is mean? the true sense of freedom. Freedom comes from submission. We, we are taught by the enemy that freedom comes from um, our, our rights or freedom comes from this idea of, of the individual owning their own self, their idea mm -hmm. of self, whether that's in... in a career in a utilitarian sense or in a discovering our inner selves in a personal sense, it doesn't matter because we're, we're taught that freedom is a, is a way to get away from things. But actually freedom is freedom too, right? So it's freedom to worship God. It's freedom to live a good life. It's freedom within the bounds mm. of what? Responsibilities. Yes. Um, but you okay. take those responsibilities away. All you're free to do then is sin. You're just free uh, in terms of you are a slave to sin. Okay. So let me, uh, let me ask you this because I want to, in a, in a way, link this with, uh, this, with Max Weber. And right. um, wh when you say that this is the true freedom, do you mean a kind of spiritual freedom? So, for instance, it is uh, of theme in, let's say, several religious traditions that to be truly free is not to care about your position in the material realm, it is to somehow 
completely transcended by not caring about it. So it is a tendency to withdraw inwards and deny the material world and embrace the transcendent element of the world. Would right. you say that this is... Yeah, yeah that's great. This is, because and, if you're trying to escape poverty, yes. that you, you live in a place of unhappiness because you're trying to get out of something. If you embrace yes. poverty... And, and see that as a starting point yeah. to, to focus on all the other things that are important in your life, then you're, you're much freer, if, okay. if that see, makes any sense. I, I, I disagree slightly. Go on. Only in that how Stelios phrases it sounds is almost Gnostic. In, in It's the abnegation of the material in order to transcend through being like a disembodied will. Mm. And I think that's an excess. What I think instead, Heidegger probably has the, the best conception of this as being capitally being. Same thing the transcendentalists and sometimes the romantics were touching on. Mm. And that is that your body is an extension of your soul and the means by which you interact with creation. Yes. And so the by denying the body and polluting the body with vice, you introduce a filter between yourself and the aspect of creation that's in you and the aspect of creation that is in the outer world. And so you need to be both connected but also in control of your um, your propensity to sin mm. in order to properly navigate creation. Yeah. And that's that's what... That's in the world, but not of the world. We yes. have to be engaged and connected with the world, but not being living in, in the world's sense. That's the perfect way to okay. put it. And, and the thing that Weber actually touches on that I really like, and this comes back to what I was trying to talk about originally, in that if you abscond God from culture, you don't remove a spirit, you just substitute it with another spirit. Yeah. Because, yes, currently, the conception of liberal secular capitalism, and liberalism as in Rousseau, which has become sort of the dominant strand, is that the abolition of all involuntarily, involuntarily imposed constraints, be that social obligations or culture itself, mm. is the prerequisite to self-authorship. Yeah. So we have to destroy everything and start from year zero. Yeah. But what he actually said was that capitalism itself is a kind of disseminated force which animates, um, animates all human activity towards the trickle-up creation of hypothetical abundance. And he had a really interesting quote towards the end. And he said, The Puritan wanted to work in a calling, we are forced to do so. For when a scepticism was carried out of the monastic cells into everyday life and began to dominate worldly morality, it is in part in building the tremendous cosmos of the modern economic order. This order is now bound to the technical and economic conditions of machine production, which today determine the lives of all the individuals who are born into this mechanism, not only those who are directly concerned with economic acquisition with irresistible force. Perhaps it will do so, determine them until the last ton of fossilised coal is burnt. But fate decreed that the cloak should become an iron cage. And he was talking about the, the analogy um, from some, someone called Baxter wrote that the care for external goods should only lie on the shoulders of a saint like a light cloak, to, which can be thrown aside at any moment. So what was before a moral, uh, d uh, a moral calling devolved to the individual to cultivate grace through work mm. has now, with the metaphysical building block being pulled out, a compulsion where you are meant to participate like a cog in a machine serving the will of another that doesn't ever seem to actually serve you as it would if you were submitting to God and living out the good. Mm. And that will, I would say, is Faustian. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.